You're listening to The Mythology of Us, the Wolf John Magazine podcast. Wolf John Magazine is an online poetry magazine that stands for the democratization of quality internet. Here, we are receptive to the wisdom of our higher selves, to strangers and newcomers, to critical feedback and refinement of ideas. Today, I am here with poet Nicholas Dirchinger, who has three poems out in the Life During Wartime issue of Wolf John Magazine. Nicholas, thank you for being here for this conversation. Yeah, thank you, Emily. I appreciate it. I'm really glad to be here. I'm so glad you are here. And um, one big question I had from you right on the outset. Um, how did you interpret the name of this issue, Life During Wartime? Uh, well, honestly, um, it coming through the, let's see, it was uh, November, maybe. I think I, I, I happened to see it. Um, and you know, it was November 2020 <laughs> in the middle of so many different wild things, right? You have the psychoticness that is politics in the United States. And then you have, um, of course, being under pretty tight restrictions with COVID-19. And it just seemed pretty, pretty appropriate that that would be the title for a literary magazine coming out soon, that what is life like in wartime? And for me, it was less about thinking through, I've lived through a war, you know, this experience of being a, a physical soldier in war or um, an operator in war, whatever uh, you might call it. And um, rather thinking about how sometimes you have the citizens, you have the people, you have these quote unquote casualties of war because of those who are, you know, forced to be uh, under those restrictions or refugees or whatever it might be that then kind of you know, are at play in that, and, you know, war is not just, you know, between two fighting sides, but there's so much more, you know, at stake. And so thinking through that, as I saw that title, for me, it became about how everyone's story, everyone's, uh, whether it's creative work or just in their personal life, you know, has a war that they're fighting, has a battle that they're fighting, you know, whether it's, you know, a battle with cancer, if it's health or mental health or something like that, or yeah. even if it's just uh, battling relationships, you know, setting boundaries and, and, you know, trying to work in such a way that it's appropriate to interact with other people when things don't go the way you want them to. Oh, absolutely. And I think that um, I like that you said that it's more than just the two sides, it's all the casualties, the civilian casualties, like thinking of what we went through and are going through in this way that we're kind of re ready to focus on healing, I think is a good next step. Yeah. Speak, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Just like the, you know, when we look back at this last year with COVID, um, for me personally, like the casualties, um, it really, you know, you see the, the underprivileged areas of the country, you see people who aren't getting like now who aren't don't, don't have access to the vaccine or we have voter suppression and we have all these different things that are happening and being talked about, you know, that become part of this casualty aspect because of this greater quote unquote war that is taking place. And it's difficult then as someone who is in the middle of it, but not necessarily engaged in an active way, I guess you could say as a, in a top power you know, a, a way, then how do we respond as individuals? How do we, how do we participate? How do we get active, whether it be in protest or writing letters to senators or whatever it might be, giving where we can give, helping where we can help. 
and finding ways to, to be active in that and take steps to be proactive to help those who are not getting the help that they need, you know, in this quote unquote wartime. That reminds me, I was looking at your, um, your blog and your website, Stoke the Wild and your podcast, and your, you wrote a, a blog on there about protesting art, about, no, about protest art and protest music, and that you're writing an essay about that. How does that fit into yeah. what we're talking about? Yeah, so um, I'm, a, I'm in the program for writers at the University of Illinois, Chicago, uh, currently in the grad program there. And in the fall semester, so during this November, December timeframe, when I saw this issue, uh, I was in a poetry workshop and working through some new poetry. Uh, but I was also in a pro seminar class, like talking about philosophy and like the state of the world. And one of the projects that we had to work on was kind of taking what we learned about um, worldview and the way of life and how that impacts the things around us and then apply it to you know, some in, in some ways apply to what's going on right now. And uh, for me, I love being a, being a poet, being a writer. Um, I love music. I love lyrics. I love listening to music. And there's so, so much influence that is found in, you know, the, the teaching of songwriting and in the teaching of lyrics and in lyric writing and in the music that has come before us and that is also currently happening as people write music about the state of the world yeah and so for me that essay um as i finished it up and, and wrote about it was all about kind of trying to communicate this time period specifically of like the big shift in um in communism in the united states right in the 50s with mccarthy but then like this wave of anti-war um peace and love, um, civil rights, protest, um, and how the music kind of was pushed through that as well. Uh, yeah. Whether it be through Bob Dylan, um, Nina Simone, yeah. uh, Bob Marley, you know, like artists and musicians who wrote about re redemption and revolution, who wrote about love, who wrote about uh, standing side by side, who, who took real life events and yeah. broke them down lyrically for people to understand and you'd have people singing them in their homes. And if they just took a minute to look at the words, you know, they'd realize that they're being taught something and not just listening to something beautiful. Oh, and yeah. So for me, kind of connecting the two was really important when I created that essay and put that together. Oh yeah. And um, I was going to list some of like you listed the singers uh, cause you made a Spotify playlist. What's it called? <laughs> you know what? Actually recently, I think I finally went through and, Cause I, I get antsy and I clean up playlists. Oh, I found <laughs> it. It was like signs and songs or something. It was yeah. Really like signs and songs of protest or something uh -huh. like that. I might've deleted it originally. So no, I found it. It was still there. So there's Bob there. Dylan, Nina Simone, Bob Marley, Creedence Clearwater Revival, the Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, Pete Seeger. And those are just the ones I saw that I recognized right off the bat and thinking about that time period and that ethos. Um, I'm wondering, do you think we're, what do you think our ethos of this era is? Wow, that's a that's a good question. Um, are we I there think that, protesting? I'm sorry. Are we there? Like, are we in the, occupying the same space that they are? They I think in some ways, right? I don't think, <laughs> you know, um, I don't want to misquote the line. So, apologies because I can't remember who it's from. But like, you know, we ain't gonna stop till we all get there. Kind of mentality right and you know as someone who loves people 
like beyond measure because that's who I am and I care about people like mm -hmm. to see um, people hurting people suffering still today that is very much in line with the suffering and pain that took place 40 years ago 60 years ago 400 years ago yeah. like that's a problem yeah it's a major problem and so do we occupy the same space I think, I think in many ways we do. Like there are still songs that are being written and songs to be written. There's mm -hmm. still work to be done. We're not, I, it sounds maybe depressing, um, half glass empty kind of mentality, but I don't think we're even close to the finish line uh, yeah. because, of, because of the way people respond to a lot of things. And for me, for me, it has to go beyond just raising awareness. Like that's one step of it. And it's important. It's an important step. Um, but it's also, you know, as a white passing person, I, I'm half Hispanic, half Jewish uh, and white passing. And so, you know, as someone who's benefited from the system because of the way that I look, you know, it's very easy for me to then say, well, this is not my problem. I could ignore this. Right. Um, but also like knowing, knowing that there are people who are hurting, who are in pain, who are suffering, who don't have the benefits that I do. I need to, as someone who is white, sit down, listen more, talk less, and give opportunities for those voices to be amplified, to be heard, and not just heard, but to push forward change that allows for uh, those communities and those people to succeed and be brought to the forefront. So that way the pain, the suffering and the issues that are at hand that we're still dealing with 40, 60, 400 years, yeah. you know, on can actually be changed that we can actually have implementation that affects good change, better change and better lives for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And um, some of the things you're saying and, and more, more like the way you're embodying and what you're what you're saying and the way you're saying it makes me think of um, something I saw on your LinkedIn that you for a long time were a youth pastor. How does that inform your poetry? How does that inform your worldview? Yeah. So I was a, I was a youth pastor for uh, about eight years and I went to, I went to, in my undergrad, I studied um, the Bible and I studied youth ministry and communication specifically. And that for me was a big part of my life. I, faith is still a big part of my life, even though I'm not active, quote unquote, again, to not think of a better term, I guess, than active, even though I'm not active at this moment as a pastor anywhere. There's been a lot of things that I've seen in the last, you know, four years specifically. Yeah. It has really showed a different face to the American church at large. You know, there's individual people who are doing the right thing, who are stepping up and who are like, like I'm talking about, like advocating for change and like doing, doing work to see that. But then there's, again, at large, like this greater face that the church has put on right now that seems to be really against, you know, any progress. And so that's, that's hard as someone who, you know, grew up in that and who's been a part of it, who's worked in it um, and who still believes that there is opportunities for that um it, it's hard to reconcile those two faces if that makes sense yeah, and yeah. so uh, for me my faith informs yes my poetry of course and, and what I write because I um that's that's just part of who I am and I still believe you know 
in good at the end of the day. And I still believe um, in beauty at the end of the day and in wonder at the end of the day and hope at the end of the day. I still believe in all of those things. And that informs then not just that poetry, but it informs then how I treat my fellow human beings. Right. You know, whether that's black or white, whether that's, um, you know, gay or straight, whether that is wherever you're at and any of the flags that you wave, like there is an opportunity to love, to be gracious and to care for people. And I think that that often gets tossed aside for dogma and, you know, theological differences and for even political differences. And we forget that basic fundamental element of being human. And that is to, you know, care for people, to love people. And that that's the thing that really kind of pushes through in terms of my life, what, what I strive for. And it's not always in my poetry. It's not found in every line of my poetry, but if you look closely, there are little threads here and there. Um, and even in like, uh, cause I also write short fiction and, and, mm-hmm. and stories and I do some screenwriting and different things like that. There are bits and pieces of that. Cause you can't really unmarry the two um, right. in terms of who I am. Oh, absolutely. Hitting you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll read your goal as stated on uh, Stoke the Wild, your website. It says, my goal has always been to capture every fear, every moment and every risk and to step courageously into the wilds of creativity where I've not yet gone. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that is uh, it's 100% like the case. I am. I believe... I believe that there's always more and that there's always more to explore and always more to experience. And, you know, fear shouldn't be a a, something that holds us back from that. But I also believe that whether you're a plumber or a painter, you are creative. Mm -hmm. And whether you're a mathematician or, you know, you write stage plays, you are a creative person. Yes. And that all of us were uniquely created to create, made to create. And it might look different than the person next to you. Um, but the fears and the, the world that sometimes wants to push us back, we should, we should find the, the courage to, to fight against that and still, you know, move on and press on. Yeah, I really like the words that you chose in talking about this goal. Courageous, wild of creativity. So wild is an important concept to you, I think, because you, first of all, stoke the wild, like embolden the wildness. And then also on your website, you say you want to it says, see the world through wild eyes and vibrant hearts. Yeah. Um, I like to think of myself like a giant kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that feeling of like being a kid and uh, even like Christmas, right? You know, and that like my eyes are big and I can see that I don't know what these presents are. And it's just like, wow, what is this? Everything is beautiful and wonderful. and I don't know what's going to happen next. That's like. I'd love to say that every day is like that for me, but I, you know, like there are moments where I get sad and I get upset, but like, I try to embody that um, in everything that I do, like to Mm -hmm. just be, I don't know what's going to happen next. And I'm terrified out of my mind about that, but I'm also very excited because there is always beauty and there is always wonder in the unknown. Nick, I think this is a perfect transition based on where you're coming from. You just explained yourself as a person, as a poet. Can you please read um, enemy of the air? Sure thing. Enemy of the air. In peacetime, my days had less meaning. My family ran around unaware. We'd soon be crammed tightly 
into our two-bedroom apartment. Doesn't seem so bad at first when everything is delivered, food, drink, grocery. Then it wasn't safe to leave. The air is now our enemy. We once gathered in masses for our Sunday rituals. Now we do not gather unless we are six feet apart. We shopped unrestricted, unnecessarily buying shit no one ever really needed. Now I leave maybe three days a week to remind myself I am something more, more than a mouse in a cage. I am human, but the air is now our enemy. The very breath in our lungs is contaminated, poisoned by unseen contagions, gripped in death. I never feared death before, but I'm afraid now. Afraid for all, for those I love. War is never kind to those forced to take shelter in the shadow of death. The air is now our enemy. This is not peacetime. This is war. Yes, thank you for that reading. And I feel like it just hits, you know, knowing your description of yourself as a as a being, as a poet, as this kid with wide eyes at Christmas and with those wide eyes, seeing all this pain and transferring all this, it's not what you want to see, but yet you, we all were there and, you know, we're still kind of there in a way. Um, so my next question is kind of, cause that poem is just going to sit with us, right? It's just going to sit with us. And my next poem is kind of about um, how you're seeing the loosening of restrictions and are you in the, which burp do you claim? I see you're from the Chicago suburbs. Yeah, yeah. So I'm in the Chicago suburbs, um, like really south suburbs. I'm in, okay. uh, I'm in this small little town right next to Joliet, Illinois. Oh right, I know Joliet. Um, called Manuka, which is very corn farm, like middle of nowhere feeling, but it's close enough to other things that you're still kind of connected. So that's that's where I'm at. Mm-hmm. And are things loosening up by you? How are you feeling that that easing of restrictions? Yeah, you know, around here, things didn't get super tight. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a pretty, like, not to throw shade, but I'm probably going to throw shade here. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty red area. We'll say that, right? Sure. And so it's, it never got, like, super, like, shut down. Mm -hmm. uh, or if it did... Uh, perhaps people just didn't take it as seriously maybe as they should have. Right. You know, and people do whatever they wanted anyway. Um, Cause it never really felt around here. Like things were as tight as maybe what I was seeing in the news or, okay, you know, even from people I know across country, like in places they're at and, Oh, excuse me. <laughs> um, had a little tickle in my throat. I don't know if that came through in the audio. <laughs> it was weird. Um, but the, uh, <laughs> For, for us, like, uh, so I'm, I'm married. I've been married almost 12 years now. I've got four kids and two of my kids are immunocompromised. My spouse is immunocompromised um, just due to health things. And so for us, it was like a very, very strict, very tight. Nope. Like we, we cannot risk it just based on what we know. And, you know, every day, every week, every month, there's some new thing that they're finding out about COVID. There's some new conspiracy theory they're talking through about COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, your grandma's uncle's cousin is sharing random stuff on the internet and like everyone's losing their minds. Yes. And in short. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we just, you know, my spouse and I, we just said, we're going to, 
we're going to play it safe. You know, our jobs at the time um, at school at the time, like allowed us to be home. Mm -hmm. And so we basically said, no, we're unless we absolutely have to, we're not leaving. We're not going out. We're not doing things. Um, being in the burbs, you know, we have a yard and, yeah. and a house, you know, we have places we can be. So we're not just like totally crammed into a small space. Um, but it was something that we wanted to take seriously. You know, I, I can't, you know, I'm not 20 anymore. Um, when I thought I was invincible and if it was just me, maybe I'd take the risk and I don't blame people who decide to do that. But if I were to go someplace, get sick and it be okay for me, but then get my spouse or my two kids who are immunocompromised sick and then something happened, like I'd never forgive myself. I couldn't take that. Risk. And so even though the restrictions weren't super tight around us, we, it was a personal choice to say we have the privilege because it was definitely a privilege. I have to, you know, claim that we had work that let us stay at home, uh, stay home. And then we had school every, where everything was done online. Even the kids, their school was done online. And so we were able to just right. be home and it was wild and it was weird. And there were days where the, I don't have hair on my head, so I can't say that my hair was falling out. Uh, <laughs> I was already bald, but like if the hair was there, it'd be going. And, um, but we made it, we made it through. Yeah. And I think that so something that I'm reminded of now um, is like the gamut of your interests and especially your writing um, uh, forebears. You say from Shel Silverstein to Maya Angelou, from Dr. Seuss to Edgar Allan Poe. These are some poets that have inspired you. Now, my question is kind of how can this gamut, this range be seen as actually a pairing? Well, that's a good question. Joel Silverstein and Maya Angelou, Dr. Seuss and Edgar Allan Poe. So, yeah, I think I think they're pairing because you have, you know, the the caricatures of Shel Silverstein and Dr. Seuss, right? Mm -hmm. Being these um, having their own personal stories, personal prejudices, and personal you know failures and mistakes, uh, but then writing these books. Um, dealing with poetry that were for kids um, again with that wild, I wonder mentality. And then you have yeah. the, the intensity, the solemnness, the inquisitiveness and the um, wisdom of Maya Angelou. And then the dark depth and, and death of Edgar Allan Poe, you know, as those inspirations for me, it, it means, it means being comfortable with exploring childhood, exploring trauma, exploring death, exploring wonder, seeking wisdom, shelling out the little bit of wisdom I think I might have, you know? Um, and I, I, yeah, it gives that, for me, it, it's all about like reminding myself that the people who came before me, they were not perfect. Um, and though a lot of the things they wrote feel very perfect mm. and I may never get close to that, but they have given me the freedom by their actions and their writing to explore these worlds as well, that they're not off limits, right? They open the mm -hmm. door to that. And so I can step in and see what I can discover there as well. Oh, absolutely. My favorite Maya Angelou quote is they'll forget what you did. They'll forget what you said, but they'll never forget the way you made them feel. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So that what you said now, just about like aspirational about poets that you admire, it reminds me of something you wrote on your Twitter. You said, I've never been signed, produced or whatever. I just like writing. And my goal is to keep writing stuff until the day I die. <laughs> that is true. I wrote that like three days ago. <laughs> I, you're stalking me? Yeah. This is stand by that? Yeah. Well, three days ago, uh, the magazine, I don't think, was out. Or whenever I wrote that, the oh. magazine wasn't out yet. Yeah. And then it was like the next day. And I was like, do I tweet a retraction? Because technically, technically, there's some published work out there, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, though, that's that's funny. I'm glad you brought that up. The uh, I, I do still stand by the the intentionality, right? Mm. The for lack of a better phrase, work ethic behind that tweet. Like there is, it brings me life. It brings me joy. And so I'm going to do it until I die, whether mm-hmm. people pay me for it or not, whether, um, which by the way, I would love, Hey, everybody, I would love it, <laughs> do it because that's one less thing to do. Yeah. yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if that doesn't happen, the joy and the, the life that it brings me personally, it'd be like, it'd be like snuffing out a fire. It'd be, mm. like, you know, turning off the, the hose, you know, and like it would eventually like just pour out of me. It would burst. And yeah. uh, I can't hold that in. I can't keep that held in similar to my faith, like the, the aspects of creativity and all that stuff. If I were to keep it to myself, I would, I would combust. Yeah. And even again, if, even if nobody saw it and I saw it, as long as I saw it, like, and I got it out there and I knew that I could do it. And for me, that was success. And that's why even I think in that tweet or maybe a a follow-up, I mentioned how a year ago now I was in the middle of a Kickstarter campaign where I self-published a book of poetry because I hadn't been published. Like people were rejecting me and I was just like, forget it. I'm going to do this myself. And that terrified me. But again, it was saying, I'm going to try this and whether it succeeds or fails, it's going to be a success to me because I didn't let someone else's no, you know, stop me from moving forward. And, you know, even a year on, I can look at that book and go, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of mistakes in there. I, maybe I would rewrite that or re- revise this poem or whatever, but at least I did it, Heck yeah. you know, and for me, that is a far greater, like, experience and a far greater win than to just say, well, you know, this magazine said no, or this, you know, uh, publisher said no, or I, I got a rejection letter from this query and, you know, just felt sad for myself, you know, and there are moments where I feel sad and I feel like this, what am I doing? Is this worth it? Should I give up? Uh, but then I'm reminded again of that, of that wonder. Yeah. That there's still more to explore. And it could take me the rest of my life, but if I keep doing it and I don't forget the reason why, you know, that I'm doing this because I love it, regardless of anyone else, then I can, I can keep going day after day. I could, might be garbage (laughs) some days, but it's my garbage and I will stand behind that every step of the way. Amen. And that's the best paper fledglings that you're talking about. That's your book, right? Yeah. Paper fledglings. And, uh, you, um, you also illustrated that book. I did. Yeah. I'm also a visual artist. Um, and yeah, we're on our. Oh, yeah. I can see there, it. So I can show you. 
show you the book there. Um, yeah, I illustrated that. It was a project I worked on for um, quite a while, mostly on the illustrating side of things where I had these ideas for poems mm-hmm. first kind of showing up as illustrations, you know, with a line or two here or there um, that I jot down in like my notebook as I'm painting or as I'm mm-hmm. sketching. Um, and there was uh, April is National Poetry Month, you know, and so uh, I have two amazing friends who are poets um, and they started this thing called Fight Evil with Poetry. Hmm. And it was started by Micah Bournet out of Long Beach, California, and Chris Campbell, who is originally from the States, but lives in the UK with his uh, spouse and kids now. And so they started this thing, Fight Evil with Poetry. And they, a couple of years ago, put out a book um, with a bunch of poets in it, which is amazing. Check it out, fightevilwithpoetry.com. I will plug them till the day I die as well. Uh, but Chris, having put together that book, I kind of like pulled on his ear. I was like, hey, man, I want to do this. Can you like, can you help me out like with layouts and kind of walk me through this process? I want to do it through Kickstarter because I don't have the money to do this up front and just want to see if I can get some people interested in. It was successful. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud of that book, even the stuff that I look back and go, oh, maybe I sh- should have revised that a, a different way or, you know, but we're always learning, right? We're always Absolutely. figuring things out. And, um, but I'm proud of the fact that I, even in fear, even in rejection said, nah, I'm going to, I'm going to try this and put it together. And so there's, uh, there's about 40 or so poems and about 20 or so illustrations kind of walking through that. And it's, semi-autobiographical so most of those poems really tie into my life um, and my personal journey both as like a kid as a person of faith um, dealing with rejection in terms of like relationships um, uh, poetry regarding my spouse my kids mm. about death and the future about regrets you know so it kind of runs the whole thing oh, yeah. you know, of what life has been like oh absolutely and it's just so provocative. The title and the front image look, it really makes me think of origami and just like all that can be suggested, paper fledglings and the, the cranes. And well, anyway, I'd love to read it. And I'm so happy your poetry is in Wolf Jaw, Ma- Wolf Jaw Magazine. Um, would you read to us the poem called The Burial, please? Sure. The Burial. I went to the woods to see if the trees would speak to me. I kept shouting at myself to feel something, anything, other than this grief I found myself wrapped in. Nothing feels like the wind nipping at your neck, so I button my jacket. No one answers. So I kept screaming as if my throat would produce the broken stained glass shards I longed to replace. The words melted, liquid death, preserving silence. The leaves rustle, squirrels gathering walnuts, scurrying up trees that bask in the nudity of barren branches. Nothing feels like the crushing of leaves beneath your feet. I press further in, in the hollows, in the places shouting goes unanswered. Nothing feels like the weight of rusted clay packed down by spades or the secrets I kept there, the whimpered cry of the last summer sparrow, breaking the silence, and I breathe, deeply inhaling the dying light of dusk. I scream one final plea. Grief has no obligation to anyone. Nothing feels like counting your losses, the loss of a life once lived, relationships once experienced. 
Here I count them in piles of leaves, in walnuts, in clay, in bird songs. I count them still, waiting for an answer. The trees refuse to speak. I turn, ashamed, warm tears breaking through wisps of wind when I hear a faint whisper, bury me here. Yes. And I was struck by a couple of things in this poem. Um, first, the repetition of nothing feels like. Nothing feels like the wind nipping at your neck. Nothing feels like the crushing of leaves beneath your feet. Nothing feels like the weight of rusted clay packed down by spades. And there's a two ways you can take that, right? So it's like nothing feels like as this, this is the only thing. It's a unique thing. Nothing else feels like this. Or nothing, literally, this is literally the feeling of nothingness, um, which is the really harsh, well, not harsh, but heavy side of reading. Because it's not the first expected uh, grammatical meaning that you're here. But when you read it a couple of times, you're like, oh, my God, this is the pain of nothingness. Yeah. Yeah, I think that for me, it was a matter of, of really, like, you hope those subtleties come through, you know, as people read. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's good to know in terms of your feedback that that. Oh, yeah. That dichotomy, right? That dichotomy of what this allowing for that self interpretation from somebody else, allowing for those moments to be there to go, oh, wow, this this could be this, but this way, this is heavy. And this is this mm -hmm. means something else by, by reading this way. And so those subtleties, um, you know, we're being intentional. Like it, it's good to know that that's, that's how it came across resonates that way. Absolutely resonates that way. And I'd say just, just talk about kind of like the tone or the voice you have in your poetry. Um, I'd say it's like, like I, how the last line is whispered in quotation marks, bury me here. Like it's so, I feel like it's it's like a forgiveness type thing you know it's like the poem is heavy but it's soft if that makes sense that it's like a yeah flowing through it yeah um i again thinking about the the history of who i am as a as an individual and a creative person like mm -hmm. it's all about story and it's all about it's all of that. It's all about that unknown and what what is next. And for this poem specifically, um, I'd written this. Uh, I'd written this part of this, I should say, through an exercise we did in that poetry workshop where mm. um, we talked about repetition and how repetition can either be a hindrance if it's overdone and like mm. finding that balance between like if you're going to repeat a phrase, um, what that looks like and. I had been reading through um, a lot of poetry by Lewis Warsh at the time um, for a for a project in that class as well, and this was this was written part of this was written in relationship to that class um, on repetition, but then also in relationship to some of his work where, in his own way, he uses repetition, but he has this he has this way of like toning things into like you said, this moment of like almost like sin experience with forgiveness tied in at the end mm. um, and not in everything, but in a lot of that stuff, like the, the noticing of things that would in many ways appear dark to somebody else. And he sees it with a bit of hope and a bit of light. And in, in some ways this became, 
kind of like response to all this reading that I was doing and, and using this structure with my professor on repetition to, to really look back at the things that I've done in life um, that I'm not proud of, like moments where I've hurt people uh, in relationships or, um, you know, with a turn of phrase that like came out wrong or mm -hmm. wh whatever it might've been and how there in the, in the woods, in this, I, this metaphorical, you know, mind forest, yeah. you know, thinking about all these things that I've planted that have been awful, you know, and yeah, there's good things that I've planted. There's good seeds that have been planted in, in people's lives, but I've also, you know, left a trail of spoiled goods in, in, in a sense, right? Like, you know, if, if the stories are Johnny Appleseed, like some of those have gone rotten and, you know, having this moment to process through these different things. And then, yeah, like you said, reaching this point of like, it's okay to let this go. Yeah. You don't have to linger here anymore. Mm. This spot is fine. Bury me, me here. Yeah. Oh, that's poignant. Um, yeah. So one thing I wanted to talk about also was your, your, your kind of mentality on revisions based on your blog post, you kind of listed two things. Um, you said, okay, when I'm doing revisions, I think about, okay, what questions am I asking? What answers am I willing to give? Can you talk about that? What answers am I willing to give? Yeah. Man, again, with this like detective work you did, in, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're talking like, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. It's like stuff that I'm like, oh, okay, I got to think back to the blog <laughs> Because um, I don't always reread those, oh, man. So revisions, right? The um, again, thinking back to this this recent poetry workshop, one thing I heard our professor say, um, amazing, amazing poet himself, Daniel Barzutsky, um, out of Chicago. He said, like, you know, revisions, like if you take the true, like, meaning of revision, mm. like re-seeing this, right, yeah. like seeing it in a different way, that that has stuck with me ever since. But when I wrote this blog post and thinking about what questions am I asking myself, I, I think it was my friend Chris who helped me with paper fledglings who, who prompted that question um, in, in maybe a little bit of a different way, but just said, what are you trying – you know, what are you trying, what question are you trying to ask here? Like, what question are you trying to get the reader to ask as they read this? And then, you know, that question just really prompted the notion that, okay, well, I don't want to give all the answers. If I'm just, if I'm just like giving you the answer in the poem, like, where's the discovery? And I might be mixing some of where these, these pieces came from. So should any of these people listen, apologies, <laughs> but <laughs> You know, like taking, taking in all these different things. Uh, what questions am I trying to get the reader to ask? And then what am I willing to answer? What answers am I willing to give up? For me, it, it comes down to being, again, heavy handed. I think we talked about a little earlier, like to not hit you over the head with like the message, quote unquote, of the poem mm -hmm. and allow more for that self-discovery having it lead you through this story, through this journey, through this moment. I think that poems that give you the answer completely can be done very well. I just don't know if I can do it. Hmm. Yeah. You know? And uh, be, you know, I've read poems where it feels like, yeah, like the clear answer of the poem or the clear like thing that you want me to get from this poem is right there. 
Um, but I just don't think I'm the best at putting that together. Um, or at least I don't believe that I am. And so approaching it in such a way where it allows for like, like you, for example, with the burial, like to read it and give me your impression of it. And for me to be like, yeah, you're, you're not, you're not wrong. And yet someone else could read it and be like, well, to me, it's like this. I'm like, great. That's great. That's what I want. I want you to, to disagree about it. I want mm-hmm. you to, it's worth reading. Yeah. And when that happens for me, that's when I feel like I've done just enough to lead you to a conclusion that you can feel happy with or feel impressed by. Um, and I don't mean impressed like, Ooh, this is amazing. But like the impression, right. Of like, Ooh, yeah. been impressed upon me because right. I feel like I got something from it. And like that, that to me is important when I, when I create my work and those, I think that really comes from the influence of both, you know, those, those amazing poets, you know, mentioned earlier, Silverstein and, and Angelou and, mm-hmm. and, you know, even Dr. Seuss and um, Edgar Allan Poe, but also like the poets of today, you know, as I continue to read poets who are alive and breathing and creating new work, mm-hmm. poets who are my peers in these workshops and classes um, or even my peers in this magazine. Yes. Like reading through some of their work, just being like, I, I was, I was like, whoa, I can't believe that I got into this because these are amazing. Like, and that honor of feeling like, okay, like this is, this is great. Like to see people lead you on this path of discovery to bring you to a point of like saying, saying I, maybe I've never experienced this, but as I read it, I can feel it. I can taste it. I can smell it. And I'm a part of it here. And that means something to me because of the work that they put in. And that that's what I strive for mm-hmm. so that people can say, you know what, maybe I don't relate to all of this, but I can see myself here because of what, what the author did. And it gives me a sense of, of being able to take something away and yes. takeaways. Takeaways for me are like one of the best things you know, if I can walk away from something and feel like I have a piece of it with me, then that's like icing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, oh, so good. Yep. That reminds me. So something you said earlier reminded me of a quote by Diego Luna, who is a Mexican actor. He was in the, one of the Star Wars movies. And he said, I think the movie should not give answers, but plant questions. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah. I, I think the some of the best against storytelling and poetry is a, you know, is a form of storytelling in a different way. And um, it's informative of course, but like there's a story there in every piece and the best ones for me are the ones that get me to ask questions Yeah, to be like, to be left with that wanting more or the, if not more going, wait, what? And then I have to reread it. And it keeps pulling me back because I know I'm not going to have all the answers. One thing I wanted to ask you, based on your sites, uh, Stoke the Wild, I got the impression that you're, you kind of have this fascination with poetry and that it, it has a unique impression on your mode of storytelling. Would you say that was true? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, I think for me, I think lyrically, mm. uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit before. And so um, I grew up, um, I grew up surrounded by music and my and and poetry and storytelling and all this stuff. 
Uh, my dad, I was a musician and he did recording and he had people come in and he'd like produce some local like music stuff for, for different people and things like that. And so music was always around the radio was always playing. The stereo was always on and he uh, loved movies. And so we had, you know, we'd watch movies and storytelling and he encouraged storytelling and, you know, writing poetry and, uh, he even, I think I was like 12 or 13. I remember once he entered a poetry contest with some of his poetry and ended up like going to California to read it to something. And I was just young enough at that point to be like, that's really cool. And I like writing too, but I wasn't paying attention to like the outcome. So I don't know what happened, but <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, like it's always been there. And that, the way that that music influences all that I create lyrically and po like with poetry, you know, even if it doesn't rhyme or even if it doesn't maybe have a, uh, um, you know, the, the rhythm of like a traditional quote unquote, like poem, uh, there is tone and there is, you know, the, the essence of, of what this song is, yeah. even if there's no music, right? Even if it's totally vocal in performance. And that that's part of it too. Like in, in some ways there is a performance even to the writing, like not just the reading it over the, the podcast or reading it, you know, from a stage, but there's the performance to the writing, um, which is why uh, for those of you, if you've checked out this issue, of Wolf John Magazine, you'll see that um, with my poems, like the layout is different. Um, and there's places where I put words because it's supposed to make your brain feel weird. And like, you know, as you read it, maybe to have to engage a little bit differently with your mind, because there's something I'm trying to communicate even in the layout. Um, and so as a reader, six feet apart. Yes. There's like right. spaces between each of the letters of six each of them on their own line, six space between S, I, X, feet, space, space, space apart. And you just, oh, it, I felt that so perfectly. And it's also indented, like exactly what Nick is talking about. Check out the magazine. Yeah. <laughs> it's easier than describing it. <laughs> and, and that's because I know that I'm not always going to be able to read it. And so if I can leave, again, just enough of those like breadcrumbs, just enough mm. moments for the reader to then make their own interpretation behind it. Uh, then for me with the, with uh, lyrically and with the poetry and in the storytelling, then, you know, just like Diego, there is this idea of like, okay, there's questions, there's more questions than answers. Mm -hmm. And that's going to keep me coming back. Cause maybe I'll uncover another one, maybe not, but it, it's calling me back to this because there's something else here that I need to see. Yes. And um, one thing I wanted to ask you, Nick, as we're kind of enjoying this summertime shy, um, how are you kind of enjoying the outdoors? Are you taking advantage going outside much? So I was, uh, I actually spent the whole day outside today. Hey. <laughs> um, for the first time in a long time, we had some family over and um, being vaccinated and like being safe is so nice. And like, you know, like there's still, you know, I'm trusting that we're all taking precautions, but it was nice to just be like, oh, this is good. This is good to have some people around and um, did some barbecue and things like that. You know, it was great. And um, but what, what we like to do, my my children, because they're weird, nerdy kids just like me, 
Yeah. Um, we, we, we actually don't do a whole lot outside unless we're doing something with other people. We um, like, we love playing like board games and card games and mm-hmm. my, my kids write their own stories and draw their own stories and put on little stage play things behind the couch with sock puppets and they um, write their own songs. And, and we're weird. We're a weird family. <laughs> we love art and we love creativity. Oh, and yeah. and um, so like when we do go out before, I'll say this before COVID, when we like were less cautious about, you know, being around people um, like we would love to go hiking. We're not that far from, um, um, Starve Rock State Park. So like going out there and like hiking around, we have friends who live in Wisconsin who uh, work at a camp. And so like going up there and camping out and like playing games at the waterfront and doing things like that at their campgrounds. So we would do a bunch of different things, but usually less local when it's outdoors, unless we're just in our, you know, our yard, just because there's not a whole lot to do by us. And so uh, my my parents who live up in Michigan live by Lake Michigan. So like when mm-hmm. we visit them, it's, you know, we're at the beach doing those types of things. So we have plans um, and my kids are really excited about some of those plans. Uh, we were talking before the show, my wife is having surgery in a couple of weeks, um, just dealing with a ton of other health issues unrelated to COVID. Uh, but that's been really, really stressful and we're just looking forward to having some of these answers kind of figured out and and yeah. whatnot so um but depending on that recovery we are currently planning just like a short road trip uh-huh. with uh with the kids to <laughs> this is gonna sound so dumb uh but we're, we're excited we're going to yeah. the we're going to this little town near dayton ohio okay that is known for having a pokemon store and i you know i'm a 90s kid um so grew up on pokemon playing it on game boy and all that stuff and had pokemon cards and my kids are into it and it's great and we love playing pokemon and so one of the things we're doing is we're going to it's like a store dedicated to pokemon and so we're going to go check it out as long as recovery goes well did you guys like the pokemon live or what was it called the one where you caught the animals that you could see virtually through the phone oh yeah pokemon go Go yes, I like that. <laughs> yes, I I still play. So um, <laughs> cool. Once I get back to campus here in the fall with everything opening up, I'm sure you'll see this strangely dressed like grown man walking around. <laughs> That's awesome, Nick. Thank you so so much for uh, interviewing with me today and for submitting your poems to Wolfjaw. I'm we just feel so blessed to have published your poems and to get to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you, Emily. I appreciate it. I am, I'm stoked to say uh-huh. that I get to be a part of it and I'm excited that I get to share space with not just amazing poets, but amazing visual arts. Uh, I don't know if it was more than one person who did the visual artwork inside that magazine or if it was just one person, but uh, people like seriously check out the magazine because I'm not kidding when I say like the artwork, the artwork makes my poetry look even better than it does because of how it's laid out. It's just like gorgeous from start to finish. And so support it, be there, check it out. It's great. Thank you so much, Nick. That was Selene Bautista, the artist and uh, many of her compatriots and her brother working very hard on that magazine. Um, So we've been speaking with Nicholas Dertinger and he has three poems in Wolf Jaw Magazine. I'm Emily Lagatola, the editor of Wolf Jaw Magazine. And thank you so much for listening to our podcast, The Mythology of Us. Thank you, Nick.